Well, it's glad to be with you. Um, some familiar faces, um, but it's always a joy to be with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Um, no matter where we come from, whether we know each other or we don't, we're united by one spirit, one God, one confession, and we're all one body. And it's a, it's a tremendous, just a tremendous joy to be with you. So um, I, I would like to just share a little bit about me just so you know who I am and who's preaching this morning. Uh, I did grow up in California. I grew up in central California in Tulare, Visalia. I was born actually in Corcoran, but not many know that unless they know Charles Manson and where he was in prison. But other than that, um, that's where I was born. I was given up for adoption at birth, uh, lived in foster care for some time, and then was adopted. My family lived in Visalia, and that's pretty much where things got started. And uh, went to school at Fresno State uh, and met my wife there. We've been married for over 25 years. Love her to death. Uh, she's a great gal. And uh, so I love that. I have four kids. My oldest is 21. Uh, he's serving in the United States Marine Corps, stationed Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Uh, my second son is a sophomore at Boyce College. You're going to hear a lot about Boyce College. No, uh, you won't hear that much, but I will give some shameless plugs here and there. But Boyce College is the undergraduate school for the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, where I have the privilege of serving currently. And uh, he's a sophomore there. His, uh, his uh, dorm room is about 100 feet from my office, so we get to keep an eye on him. <laughs> and then we have two daughters, 15, 13, freshman in high school, 8th grade, uh, took up lacrosse, never heard of lacrosse, uh, had to move to Kentucky to hear about it, and uh, so by the way, you'd all appreciate this, it was really odd, by the way, when I had to put a Kentucky license plate on my car. Being a California boy, that was really difficult, um, but at the same time, the DMV experience was awesome, and uh, so, <laughs> so I don't miss California DMV at all, and uh, so I've had the wonderful privilege of being in the pastorate for a couple of decades, and uh, two years ago, I uh, made the decision to join the faculty at Southern Seminary. I'm, I'm the department chair for biblical counseling at uh, Boyce College, and uh, so really enjoy that. I wasn't sure if that's a transition I wanted to make. When you're adjunct faculty, you're like grandparenting. Uh, you just, you kind of come in, you play with the kids, you leave. And uh, so it was sort of like, wow, I'm going to go full-time faculty. Do I really want to do this? And we did, and we enjoy it, and we're enjoying our time in, in Louisville, and uh, so it's wonderful being there. Uh, so I'd, here's the shameless plug. Boyce College is a great college. Uh, the Masters University is also a great college. I have a degree from there as well and from uh, Master's Seminary. However, Boyce College is an awesome college, and, uh, <laughs> and so if uh, any of you would like to come and, and get a wonderful degree uh, from wonderful people in a wonderful city, uh, we have great coffee, by the way, if that's in any way uh, something you're interested in. But uh, I'd also say this, those of you who may be considering a college, a Bible college, uh, one thing that is often uh, overlooked is consider the health of the churches nearby, that while you're going to college, you'll have good churches to attend while you're there. And that's one thing that maybe could not have been said about the area um, maybe 10 years ago, but uh, it can be said now. Uh, so the toughest thing will be just choosing because there's a number to choose that are really healthy and it's great. Uh, more, more recently, I also accepted uh, the call to be the executive director for a missions organization called Overseas Instruction and Counseling. And we take counseling training. We basically train biblical counseling trainers globally. And we were in over 30 countries last year. We took over 115 teaching trips. I did not do them all. That was split among about 25 missionaries. And so we have a great time doing that. Um, the, the ministry is called Overseas Instruction and Counseling. OIC is our acronym. Please do not look up OIC. Okay? You'll find opioid-induced constipation. That's not us. 
So don't go there. Um, you might also pull up a number of Islamic groups. That's not us either. So if you think about us, think about discoveroic.org. And so uh, we certainly appreciate your prayers. Uh, that's definitely helpful. So with that in mind, um, I want you to turn, if you would, if, you, if you've, uh, maybe you haven't left there, but, but do go to Romans 8. We're going to the text we're going to look at is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, but as a, as a background to the implications of Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, uh, Romans 8 and many other places are helpful, uh, but in particular, I, I did want to start there. So uh, as we begin, may I pray for us and just ask the Lord to help us to understand his word and to put it into practice. Father, we come before you because we are indeed needy people. We're utterly dependent on you, and that's the best place to be. You've created us to be dependent on you. That's where we find and flourish as your created uh, people, and we're grateful for the counsel you provide for us on a regular basis, the fact that you keep an eye on us and you guide our steps, and you show us the way of life and of life everlasting. Father, we need your help to understand your word. We're grateful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who inspired and wrote uh, the words that we have that are your words, Uh, and you also have indwelled us with your spirit that we might be able to understand it and that we might also be able to practice it. And Father, we're grateful that you have changed our hearts, that we would desire your word, that we would desire your wisdom, that we would desire to glorify your name and all that we say, think, and do. And we need your help to do just that. And so we come before you asking for such help. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in Romans 8, uh, I just want to highlight a few things. And, and, And one is the great truth that, as Chris rightly asked us to amen to, and that is there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ Jesus, then... You will not be condemned for your sin. You could think of it this way, that when Jesus was on the cross and he cried that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he cried that cry that you never will. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled and would be fulfilled in us that we would not walk according to the flesh, but we would walk according to the Spirit. But one of the things that we learn about this walk is it's not an easy walk. When I first became a believer, I did not think I was a needy person. I was living according to the world. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and following were very descriptive of my life. I, I was living according to the world. I was living according to the lust of my flesh, and I thought everything was great. Until God opened my eyes to help me see not all things were great. And since uh, Christmas is around the corner, we might think of the Grinch. I know we should think of Jesus, and we're talking about Jesus, but we might also think of the Grinch. Okay, And we might think about Jim Carrey's version of the Grinch. And if you remember when his heart grew, and he made that statement, it's like, what is this, right? And the whole point was this was something foreign to him. And when I first came to faith in Christ, guilt was foreign to me. I actually never felt guilty before. And there was a sense that when I first became a believer in Christ, I wasn't any different than I was the day before, or the hour before, or the minute before. I looked very much the same, it's just that things were much more open, and I understood the Bible, and I received it, I warmly welcomed it like I had never done before. 
but I didn't know about changing my life, and so I just kind of kept living the life I was living, but now all of a sudden it was not enjoyable anymore. And part of the growth process, as described in 2 Peter chapter 1 and following, in, chapter, in verse 5, he says, look, we need to make every effort because we've been given all that we need for life and godliness and because of the life we've been given that we've been saved from the corruption of this world and of this flesh that's tainted by sin, then we need to, with all diligence, supplement our faith with virtue. And that's moral courage in the sense, I want to do the right thing. But I find that there's resistance to doing the right thing. And I have to supplement that virtue with knowledge. I need to know what the right thing is to do. And and what Peter says then is you have to add to that knowledge self-control. Because your flesh and the Holy Spirit are at constant battle with one another. Paul describes that in Galatians 5. They're at war with one another. Living the Christian life is not that easy. Living the non-Christian life is a bit easier because you just simply do what you want to do when you want to do it and how you want to do it. But when it comes to living the Christian life, you have to actually add to your virtue and to your faith and to your knowledge, self-control, and that's not enough to change. See, I could could make an argument with all of you that I'm a very patient person. Matter of fact, it was May 11th. It was 2012. I was patient. (laughs) One time, I used self-discipline. I'm patient. Did it, right? We accomplished it. Check it off. We've arrived. No. You have to add to your self-control steadfastness. Meaning I have to be patient today, and then I gotta be patient tomorrow, and then I gotta be patient the next hour, and then I gotta be patient the next minute. <gasps> oh man. And you begin to realize, wow, it's after that then that we add to it godliness. And godliness, brotherly love, and brotherly love, love. And if these attributes are yours and they're increasing, then they render you effective in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's very much of what's Described here, the mind on the flesh is death, the mind on the spirit is life and peace, the mind is set on the flesh, it is hostile to God. But, as he says in verse 9, you however are not in the flesh. And in verse 12 he says, so then brothers, we are debtors. We, We do have an obligation, but that obligation is not to the flesh. See, this is one of the beautiful aspects of being born again. You're free. You're free to be patient. You are free to love others. You are free to be faithful. You are free to be kind and tender-hearted. You are free to not fear and to be confident. You're free to be courageous. You're free to do this in Christ. You, you're no longer obligated to follow the patterns of your sinful nature. And to a certain extent, he puts this into the metaphor of adoption. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive that spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now something's very important to understand is when Paul uses this term, when he uses this metaphor of adoption, he has in mind the culture in which he lives, which is the Roman 
culture. And in the Roman culture, adoption is not quite the way it is seen sometimes here in the States. Sometimes it's seen as, as kind of like a, um, it's belittled at times. It's not seen as legitimate, if you will. Yet in their time, they're living with the emperors in the, in the Roman culture, and there was not one emperor just before Christ being born, and pretty much well after Christ was being born, there was not one emperor that was an emperor by birth. Every emperor in place in Rome was by the way of adoption. Adoption was seen as one, an incredible, legitimate way of one being a child of another family. Also, adoption wasn't so much about rescuing orphans. It was literally about rescuing a family. It was about a family that wanted to carry on its legacy. It was, it was about a family that wanted to carry on and have someone to give its inheritance to. And, and it was actually about taking someone from one family and placing them in another. And what he depicts for us is the fact that we all have to recognize that at one point before Christ, we had an obligation to a particular family value with Satan as our father. And God adopts us from that family and places us in his family with all of the wonderful privileges thereof. And so now we're no longer obligated to follow the values of that family anymore. But we have the freedom because of who we are in Christ. Now, this sets the stage in two ways for Hebrews 4. One is the fact that we have this legitimate, familial, intimate relationship with God as Father. And two, we also recognize that part of our ongoing struggle, as he says in verse 17, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That we have an ongoing struggle against the temptation to sin. And we see that in Romans 8, and we recognize this is who we are. This is the theological understanding or theological identity, if you will. And so when the author of Hebrews writes to the church, he's writing to a church that is facing tribulation and trial. And the concern of the people, primarily Jewish people, who have been dispersed, who have lost their identity, who have lost their property, who have lost all of who they are, and in which uh, I've, I've had a wonderful opportunity of understanding this a little better by doing ministry in the Middle East and doing, in part, doing ministry to Syrian refugees, who have been displaced by their fellow citizens, by their brothers and sisters, and then they're being embraced in other countries by Christians who are supposed to be their enemies. And they're absolutely befuddled because they're just standing here going, hold on, our brothers are the ones who've caused this and it's our enemies who are the ones who are relieving this. There must be something to this. And, and, and you watch and you live with some of these people, you learn their stories and you begin to understand the great trial of being displaced, the great trial of losing all of your identity and your possessions and your family and so on and so forth. And the concern of the author is that those who don't know Christ will not see him for who he is and that those who do are going to fall away. See, the biggest issue here is, is not whether or not the people are necessarily comfortable in their trials, but are they faithful in their trials? 
He says in Hebrews 2, verse 1, he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This was of grave concern. Because while temporal things are of some importance, eternal things are much more important and much weightier. And so when facing trial, there is that temptation to be disloyal, to disbelieve, and to then ultimately disobey our God. The actual trial is not a struggle in the sense of, of, again, physical issues as much as it is remaining faithful through the trial. We often underestimate how trying it is to resist sin. The author provides some specific sinful behavior that one might practice when under trial. In Hebrews 12, 14 through 16, he says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. In other words, people are tempted both to quarrel with others and also to just worship other things. Because when you're in the midst of trial and you begin to feel the discomfort and somebody were to say to you, oh, would you like to feel better now? I mean, it's like, yeah, right? And, and there'll be a great temptation to follow relief rather than my redeemer. I mean, these things catch us all the time. I still remember, I use this illustration often, living here. I don't know if this commercial's still around. But I remember living here, there was a commercial. It was two police officers. They had a police car behind them, and they were standing up, and they asked this question of you. Do you want your children to wind up in the backseat of our car? And, you know, and you're like, no, of course not. And then you're like, whoa, right? I mean, you're, you're attracted to this. Oh, I want to know the answer, right? Make sure you send your kids to preschool. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about, wow, how hopeless is that, that mom who just put her child in kindergarten and forgot preschool? <laughs> and, and, I mean, this is what marketers do. My, my, my college degree is in marketing. I mean, we learned how to manipulate people. That's what it was. We either tell you we have something that will meet a need you think you already have, or we're going to convince you you have a need and we'll meet it. I mean, that, that's a lot of what marketing is to a certain extent because of the, the understanding that Christians have of anthropology. We could make some really mean marketers. Anyway, um, we could use what we know in a really evil way. But anyway, let's not go there. Verse 16, Hebrews 12, he says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. We're tempted to indulge our fleshly desires and, and, and to just really devalue the things of the Lord. Hebrews 13, there's the temptation. He says, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect showing hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, those in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. In other words, at times when we're going through trials ourselves, we'll pull back and become very inward focused and, and not necessarily care for the needs of others. In verse 16 of Hebrews 13, he says, do not neglect doing good. And to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Also in Hebrews 13, 4 and 5, he says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, 
Seeking sex outside of marriage, the pleasures of that. Loving money, he says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. So simply not being content, seeing other relationships or more money as a way to remedy the trials that you're facing. These are, these are just a number of the temptations that the author of Hebrews just puts before the people. That do not let yourself be defiled. Do not let yourself walk in this way. For you will be tempted to do that. You'll be tempted to be disloyal. You'll be tempted to distrust the Lord. You'll be tempted to disobey his commands. And so he says in verse 9 of chapter 13, Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. We will also be greatly tempted to listen to false teaching. And so to ensure this doesn't happen, the author of Hebrews draws our attention to the supremacy and to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That when we focus our attention on him, that we're looking to him who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, then we remain loyal and believe. And so then we say things like Peter did when others were falling away, and Peter says, where else will we go? You are the Holy One of God, and you alone have the words of eternal life. One of the great things that we learn from the lament psalms and the psalms is, is that the lamenters lamented to the Lord because the Lord was the only one. He was the exclusive one in whom they put all their trust. It's kind of similar if you go up, you know, if maybe you like coffee, you go to a coffee place and you order your drink and they mess it up. And you go to the person there, and you're like, hey, you need to fix this. And they say, no, we're not going to fix it. At some point, you might say something like, hey, let me see your manager. Right? Why? Because you want to talk to somebody who can do something about it. And that's what happens in the Lament Psalms. They, they utterly put their trust and their hope in the Lord, and they rely on him and him alone. And that's what the author of Hebrews is drawing our attention to. We focus our attention on him. We see him as an example. We obey. We stop using our trials as excuses for disobedience. Hebrews 12, 1 through 4, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, think about, dwell on, reflect on him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you, for what purpose? That you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. What's the implication? Resisting sin is gonna be wearisome and at times you will be faint-hearted. And what do we do in those moments? In your struggle, he says in verse four, against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The author wishes for no one to miss out on our promised rest in Christ and the promised help to preserve or persevere under trial. We're broken people. And we're broken people, we're living in a broken world and we're dealing daily with broken pieces. It's tiring, it's often depressing living in such a sin-cursed world. There's a sense that believers live in this, a little, feel it a little more sharply. Romans 8 says, all of creation groans. All of creation groans. I mean, we're between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22, and Romans 8 is a depiction of where we're at. All creation's groaning. All creation is waiting for the ultimate day of redemption. But there's a certain extent uh, that believers groan a little more sharply 
Okay? You know in California we have really good Mexican food? Florida, not so much. And I'd hear people in Florida go, ah, oh, we don't really have that good Mexican food. I was like, no, you don't understand. They don't understand the painful sorrow that someone who knows there's something better. <laughs> See, they don't know anything better. They know it's not that good, but they don't know anything better. They groan, sure, but they don't groan sharply like we did. I mean, it was famine in the land. Because when you know there's something better, you groan sharply. And as believers, we know of something that was better, and we know of something to be better, and we know what we're living in right now, and we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. And so we groan more sharply. And it's tiring at times. In the daily fight against the circumstances of life, they tempt us to be disloyal to Christ and to our calling. They tempt us to disbelieve his love and his care, and they tempt us to disobey his wise commands. And so the author points out that even Jesus learned obedience through suffering, Hebrews 5, 8 through 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Because if there is no resistance to a certain extent, I mean, you just go with ease, But when there's resistance, then what you believe is then put on display and tested. Will you believe and obey what your father has said? Or will you believe and obey what either thoughts are coming to your mind or what others are saying? That will be the ongoing temptation for the remainder of our days. This is why that one of the greatest joys that's often not talked about about heaven is that there will be no more resistance to living a righteous life. See, this is a peace that none of us can even comprehend. The fact that you, you know, I joke oftentimes about the fact I'd love to leave my house some days without me. And that would be awesome, right? Just a day without me. That would be great. And, and what I mean by that is just a day where I'm not in any way desiring anything other than righteousness. And that there would be no resistance. I I wouldn't be saying any longer that which I want to do, I I don't do, and that which I don't want to do, this is what I do. What a wretched man that I am. But we do thanks, and we give thanks to Christ, because there's a day coming where righteousness dwells, There will be no more resistance to living the righteous life. And it will be a peace that none of us can comprehend. And until that day, however, we do live in this world. For everyone who lives, also in Hebrews 5, we we learn that the ones who are mature are those who gain in discernment, who practice throughout their lives, using skillfully the word of God, to navigate all the trials of life, being faithful to the Lord. And so these three verses, 14, 15, 16, Hebrews 4, are here to encourage us. They are here to give us the practical approach to avoiding such pitfalls. Often when we're about to face trying, frightening times, we're told to hold on. This is how we hold on. In these three verses, I want you to see three truths that we hold on to when we face trials and run to God's throne of grace First is this, hold on to the supremacy of Christ. 
hold on to the supremacy of Christ. Verse 14. Since then, he says, that brings to mind this logical conclusion or implication of certain truths. Our theology, what we think, what we believe about God, it, it impacts what we do. Everyone's a theologian. So it's not a question about whether you're a theologian or not, just are you a good one? We live out what we believe every single day. Our theology, what we think, what we believe, again, it impacts, impacts what we do. The author is saying that since these things are true, we are to be encouraged, holding fast, drawing near to God. The truth here is that Jesus is our great high priest, and we have a great high priest, he says. He is our great high priest. He is superior to any of the prior priests. And so I want you to notice the four personal things about his priesthood which we can offer supreme praise. And that is, one, he is our great high priest. We always have him. This is a present tense verb. He is our great high priest. We are ever possessing him. How do we have him in that kind of possession? Because God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be adopted as his sons. My dad will forever be my dad. And he is my dad by way of adoption. Now, that's a physical, temporal understanding. And it's much more permanent by the fact that I'm adopted by God, our creator. And because of that, it's permanent. You cannot do anything to disconnect that. Romans 8, again, is very instructional. Not only is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but also nothing, he says, can separate you from the love of God. So we always have him. We, as believers, this is a community thing. We all confess this truth. And so he says in Hebrews 3, 13, 12 to 14, in particular 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Secondly, he is our perfect high priest. He is our perfect high priest. It was indeed fitting, Hebrews 7, 20 says, that we should have such a high priest. He's holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's separated from sinners, and he's exalted above all the heavens. He is our forever high priest. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. So we can confidently say, as a result of that theological truth, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, what I believe about who God is affects then the way I perceive my circumstances and the way I respond to them. He is also our sufficient high priest. This is all so much more than human priests who are limited by their health, their sin, their frailty, and their eventual death. He is eternal, he is perfect, he's sufficient, and he is ours. Second mark of Christ's supremacy is that the human priest merely entered into a temporary sanctuary, but Jesus, on the other hand, passed through the heavens. He's entered the very presence of God, not merely an earthly sanctuary. The traveling tabernacle was established by God in Exodus 25. That was temporary. The temple built in Jerusalem by King Solomon was destroyed, and it was rebuilt only to be destroyed again. They were mere shadows of the permanent and transcendent temple of God in heaven. Hebrews 9.24, the author puts it this way, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are just copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
It is the temple Jesus has entered in and is currently serving as our advocate, interceding on our behalf. He is then our hope and the anchor of our soul. As the author puts it in chapter 6, he says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Jesus is our mega priest, you could say, and he is our forever priest. And the third mark of Christ's supremacy is that Jesus is the son of God. He uniquely combines humanity and divinity to be our perfect priest. He's our savior, he's our God, he's our creator, he's our life giver, he's our sustainer, he's the propitiator of our sins. Hebrews 2, 17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so because of him and his gracious act, God looks at us differently. He looks upon you as a child, not an enemy. So since he is superior to all, then we hold tightly our confession of him as our Lord and Savior, we don't turn anywhere else. He is supreme. There's no one else to turn to. And when under trial, we hold on to the supremacy of Christ. He is the combination of greatness, exaltation, humanity, and deity. If you would, imagine a, a little girl who's gone through a great tragedy, maybe gone through a fire or a hurricane, or something of that nature, and she's dirty. She's scared, but you just see her holding tightly to a teddy bear. Because in that moment, in the midst of that trial, that teddy bear, holding on to that teddy bear, brings her great comfort and great strength. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, let us hold on to our high priest, Jesus Christ. So we hold on to the supremacy. Secondly, in verse 15, we hold on to the sympathy of Christ. So we hold on to the supremacy of Christ and then we hold on to the sympathy of Christ. So Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows how easy it is for us to stumble our way through life. This is not a sympathy that is ready to condone sinful behavior. It's not that kind of sympathy. It's a sympathy that means fellow feeling. Though he was sinless, he had a real human body, a mind, emotions with all of its inherent weaknesses. He was Ignorant and taught, he thought, he walked, he talked like a baby before he thought, walked, and talked like a man. This is why our text asserts that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He lived with a human body, mind, and soul, all their limitations except for sin. It is the fact that if you have two pianos in the same room, some of you who play piano or know music would know this, that, that if a note struck on one piano, the same note will gently respond on the other, though it wasn't even touched. It's called sympathetic resonance. I just thought that is a wonderful illustration. And Christ's instrument was just like ours in every way. Christ in his body, he passed through the heavens. When a chord is struck in the weakness of our human instrument, it resonates in his. There's no note of human experience that does not play on Christ's exalted human instrument. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's able to sympathize because he's been tempted in every way and in every respect as we are yet without sin. Now again, we need to understand that we need to take things down from the temporal life because a lot of times we say to ourselves, well, hold on. 
We object. Jesus, mm-mm, he doesn't live with my spouse. He, he, he doesn't live next to my neighbor. He doesn't have to face traffic. Never had that. True. But see, we need to understand something. The real temptation is not about traffic. The real temptation is not about other people. The real temptation is, what are you going to do in response to those situations? That's the real temptation that's shared by all of humanity. Because all of humanity faces uncomfortable circumstances whereby they would either follow their own way of addressing it or follow the way of the Lord. That's true of all mankind. It doesn't matter where we go. All of mankind wrestles with those issues. A heart that wants what the heart wants. This is why oftentimes when we're training in biblical counseling, we say, remember, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We teach that at Boys College, by the way. So Jesus walked through as we do the trials, sufferings, and circumstances that we all face. And in his humanity, he lived a day-to-day human in prayer, by the word, dependent on the Holy Spirit. He never stopped being God, but he did not live his day-to-day life by his godness, but by his humanness. He did not fight the internal temptations we do since Jesus was not born in sin as we are, but the extent of external temptations, namely the onslaught of Satan, greatly made up for the lack of internal temptations. He did not face the exact details of our lives, but the general experiences were certainly there. He didn't have that spouse you have, but he knows what it is to be taken for granted and not to be thanked. He didn't have one who cared for you or didn't care for you or didn't honor you. He knows what it's like not to be honored or respected, not to have your wishes carried out faithfully without complaint or rebellion. He didn't have your boss, but he knows what it's like to be mistreated. He didn't have your neighbor, but he knows what it's like to be insulted. He didn't go to your school, but he knows what it's like to be disliked, to be gossiped about, to have people tell lies about you, to have people treat you like you are dumb, to even be bullied. He walked as a man. He was well acquainted with sleeplessness, hunger, and discomfort. He was acquainted with not being liked, despised even, and not being thanked. He was acquainted with people not agreeing with him. He was acquainted with insults, people not listening to his life-giving truth, the death of loved ones, near-death experiences, pain, grief, and ultimately death, even death, on a cross. And he experienced something you never will if you're in Christ, and that is the wrath of God. Again, that he would cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you never will. He was tempted to ease the struggle, the pain, the discomfort by being disloyal, distrusting, disobedient. He experienced what it was like to live in the flesh in a sinful and sin-cursed world, yet without sin. And this is what makes him so perfect. He obeyed even when doing so would mean even more pain and suffering. He experienced temptation to the maximum. We have never, none of us ever will experience temptation like Jesus because he experienced it beyond our breaking point. Some of you may have run marathons. I think the farthest I ever ran was maybe five miles. You know what that means? I have no clue what it's like to run six. I have no clue what it's like to run ten. I have no clue about 13. I never even understood that. People with stickers on their cars that said 13.1. I was like, what is that? It's like cult. I mean, I don't know. Okay, and I came to find out what it was later. And I don't know if it's 13.1. It might be something else. Anyway, that's not the point. 
but I don't know what it's like to run 20 miles. And by God's grace, I don't know what it's like to run 26. But see, some of you do. See, you've ran past certain breaking points that other people have never faced. And Jesus has ran past and endured temptation beyond every single one of our breaking points. That's the whole point of what the author is emphasizing when he says, yet without sin. That makes him supreme. That is what makes him sufficient. You never know how strong something is unless you've stood against it. You would never know how strong the wind is if you simply lied down. Jesus fought every temptation, every time, fully experiencing the unmitigated force of each temptation until he had succeeded in defeating each one, coming out the other side victorious. One author said this, Jesus never sinned, but he understands sin better than any man. He has seen it more clearly, fought it more diligently than any of us could ever be able to do. His sinlessness increased his sensitivity to sin. And unlike us, he faced the extent of temptation, again, without sinning. His victorious experience with temptation provides sympathy, encouragement, and victory for us in our temptation. Another author says this, whatever we may be going through, there is not a note we can play, not a melody or a dirge, no minor key, no discordant note that does not evoke a sympathetic resonance in Jesus. He mastered the instrument while he was here on earth, and he wears it in heaven. Do you want sympathy? Do not go anywhere else. Dare not go to anyone but him. So in order to stand firm, we hold on to the supremacy of Christ, the sympathy of Christ, and lastly, we hold on to the strength of Christ. To obtain his strength, we must draw near to him. We're to come to God with all reverence and awe. And why wouldn't we? He is supreme. He is sympathetic. And so we wait for the Lord. And you catch this in Isaiah 40. He says, they who wait for the Lord. What does that mean? It means to be dependent on the Lord. It means not to take matters into your own hands. It means to trust in the Lord. It means to do that which the Lord would have you to do. It means to believe him, to be loyal to him, and to obey him. And it's in doing that that you renew their strength. And it's a wonderful word there. It's not like the idea of just regaining some strength you already had. This is more of an exchange of strength. In other words, you live life and you learn to live life with the power of God in your life that you might then mount up with wings like eagles. There's a certain effortlessness to the way in which you face trial because you're empowered and strengthened by our God. And so we come to the throne of grace. This is a reverent reference to God's presence. And the throne, it denotes a seat of dominion and authority. And often it is the place of judgment. Okay. You think about time at grade school. I don't know what your grade school experience was. I did, unfortunately, spend much time in the principal's office. It was never for good. The door was just not open. We just not walk in the office and go, hey, what's up? You know, nothing. None of us had that kind of confidence at all, ever. Okay. If you were there, it's because you were in trouble, because it was a place of judgment. You know, again, I, I shared with you that I was adopted, and, and obviously by my last name, I was adopted by Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and Mr. Rogers, uh, my Mr. Rogers, uh, 
was a manager of a furniture store, grew up in the furniture business. And I was about 10 years old in Tulare, California. I'd walk right into McMahon's Furniture. I'd just walk in, walk right through the doors. I'd say hi to the salesman. I'd say hi to the people in the office. I'd just continue walking through that store, and I'd walk right into the back room. This was in the day and age, you know, when inventory was actually at the store. And uh, so there was inventory in the back, and there were backroom guys that worked on putting furniture together, repairing furniture, and delivering furniture. And I'd go back down and say, hey, Alvin, what's up? Hey, Glenn, hey, how you doing? Somebody might ask if somebody was new. They're like, hey, who's that? Oh, it's Mr. Rogers' kid. Oh, okay. Um, now, why did I have such confidence? Because of my relationship. The author of Hebrews says this. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. What do we need to know about that? One, we, sometimes we underestimate the privilege we have to go before the creator God and call him Father. In, in Romans 8, when it talks about that, right, we've been given the spirit of adoption that we might call him Father. I mean, first of all, that we might call him, period. But then the fact that we might call him Father, it, it, it draws to the conclusion that this is an intimate, filial, and permanent relationship, and it's absolutely legitimate. Therefore, I have confidence to approach the throne, not of judgment, but the throne of grace, that I might receive mercy and grace in my time of need. See, again, at the heart of a believer is righteousness. So when you're born again... You warmly welcome the word of God and you supplement your faith with virtue, moral courage. I want to do the right thing. I am living and I thirst and I hunger for righteousness. So my greatest concern is not so much about whether I'm comfortable or I'm not comfortable, about whether I make it through this trial or I don't make it through this trial, or whether this trial is in existence for 10 years or this trial is in existence for only 10 minutes. But my concern is no matter the trial, I will remain faithful and righteous in my response to the trial because I desire righteousness. See, this is why James could say something so kooky as counted all joy. When you face trials of various kinds, you need to understand he also too was writing to trying people under trial. And it's like the very first thing he says, hey, count our all joy. It seems like, yo, James, you need to learn a little something about counseling. You don't just start with that. But why does he start with that? He starts on that because of their theology. He says, for you know. See, there was a foundation of theology that could bear the weight of such a command. Count it all joy. Why? Well, you know that the testing of your faith will produce perseverance, and that will have its full effect, and that is Christ-likeness. And oh, by the way, because of who you are as believers, that's what you want. And because you want that so bad, you actually can count it joy when you face that trial. Why? Because the heart, because remember, the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. Yeah. The heart wants to live righteously, wants to be Christ-like, and oh, I understand that my trials are actually orchestrated by my Father for me to learn to live a Christ-like life. Ah! So my response to it is, I can count it all joy. Now, does that mean I, you know, I, I go, oh, Lord, bring on the paint? No! That's not what it means. I still cry, and I weep, and I'm sorrowful, and I grieve, and I say, how long? 
Oh, Lord, how long? But then I say, oh, my God, if you do not remove this from me, may I not fall away. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. That's the heart of the believer. I, I, I want to be righteous. And I need mercy for my failures. Do you know that with confidence, you can go before the throne of grace with confidence with your sin? Did you know your father is actually a safe person to go to with your sin? I know not all of us think that way. My dog is like a perfect example of this. It's like, you know, you just look at a dog and you're like, man, you did something you shouldn't have done, huh? Right? I only know that right now. I'm sensitive to that right now because we have a puppy. A Bernadoodle, okay? Yeah, I know. We're just getting in with it. We're so trendy. Anyway, um, but I also see it in my kids because our natural temptation when we sin is to hide. And our father says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that you might receive mercy in our failures. But at the same time, I need his grace to be righteous in the midst of my trials. This is that grace, this is that sustaining power, that sustenance, that encouragement, that energy, that resource that I need to be victorious. Mercy in my failures. Grace to be successful. And so, in closing... Again, there's a great concern of falling away when we are under trial, but God gives us what we need. And so we see here those three great truths that we have to hold on to. We hold on to the supremacy of Christ, the sympathy of Christ, and the strength of Christ. And listen to what the author of Hebrews, what he says in closing. Hebrews 13, 20 verse 21 Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you as needy people. Every one of us facing variety of trials and temptations whereby we are tempted to distrust you, to be disloyal to you, and ultimately disobedient. Father, may you, if you will, just enlarge our hearts to know how to perceive the situations that we're going through and to want and to desire strongly to be faithful to you, seeing you as ultimate, seeing you as supreme, ever holding on to your supremacy and to your sympathy and to your strength as we draw near to you with confidence, knowing that we will receive mercy and grace in our time of need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.